this is Maureen Milliken. And this is Rebecca Milliken, and this is Crime and Stuff. The podcast. You would do if you had nothing better to do. That's right. Yeah. And it's very hot and humid. And Ugh. So I have my windows open, and I know I that... I do not have mine open. It's not an ideal recording. Because I have an air conditioner thingy, mm. and so I have the, don't have that on. Yeah, but I you don't. can still hear all the freaking traffic going by yeah. if it goes by. So anyways, and so... Tonight we're doing an update episode, and don't yes. don't like say I'm not going to listen because but because our updates some of them tend to be decent stories and yes um, they do, and also we're funny anyway. So what do you want? At least we think we are. Uh-huh. Yes, and we're going to go in order of the episodes we're yes. updating, and, and I, I have a lot, so. and 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 I just want to tell people if they they hang on, I have some Black Lives Matter stuff and Jelaine Maxwell stuff, Ooh. but it's way at the end. So, so do you just want to go first, Becky? Yes. Okay. So I went through every single episode. That Holy I did. shit. And Googled to see what I missed in the wow. last four years mm. because I've been lax. Don't worry. It's not like every single episode has anything. Okay. I probably missed some stuff. I don't think I was always sure about what episode some things were in if they weren't the main topic. I should, I guess, know these things, but I don't. So... I may have already done a couple of these updates, but I don't think so. I didn't remember them. If it's something I did before, they're they're short, so it doesn't really matter. So the first one is our very first episode, the Yoga Twins. And it's one of our most downloaded ones. It is. It's a very popular episode. There have been a few things about Alexandra Duval, a.k.a. Alison Dadao. And I'm not going to like, I'm not going to rehash every episode. So if you can't figure out what I'm talking about, you should listen to the episode. If you you haven't listened to the episode, then it means you should. And then you'd know what the update means. (laughs) Most notably, she was on Dr. Phil in the fall of 2018. Which one? The alive one, Allison. Okay. The other one's dead. I know, but you just (laughs) said she, and you should never use a pronoun when, you know... Okay, Miss Editor. Yeah, that's me. Well, I did say Allison, a.k.a. I mean, Alexandra Duval, a.k.a. Allison Dadao. Okay, I made right a Right before I part. said she. Okay. So, I mean. All right. The parts of the interview I saw were generally useless because every time Dr. Phil asked Allison a question, she'd say she didn't remember. <laughs> or when he presented her with information about her past, like, oh, you and your sister were in a car crash in uh, Utah, she'd say, oh, I don't think that's true. <laughs> when it's like, yes, it was true. Or she'd say she doesn't remember. Like he asked her about or some hair pulling incident. And she said, hair pulling, that doesn't sound like us. I don't <laughs> think that's true. I mean, she'd just say things that were like non So what was the point of the whole... I don't know. I didn't see the whole interview because there was only clips online. But he didn't like, it didn't seem like he was like trying to pin her down about anything. She seemed really mm. flaky. Talk about an unreliable narrator. Mm. But if you listen to our episode on the Dadao Duval twins, you will understand that this behavior is not surprising. The twins, they kind of went through life one step ahead of all the people they conned or, or used or crossed. And I'm not sure what exactly what Alexandria is up to now. I'm sad she for her that she doesn't have her twin, but she really does seem flaky. What I mean, name is she going by? Which Alexandria, is I she? think. Okay. Yeah. And Dr. Phil asked her why they changed their names, and she was just like, oh, we just wanted a new start. We weren't trying to hide or anything. Mm. We weren't trying oh, to hide or do like, who we were. Because like, I saw... a little defensive, aren't we? Because I saw uh, some cheesy, you know, on some oh. cheesy true crime show recently did them, and they didn't even mention the other names it was weird that's weird well there is a movie based on them on netflix called twin sanity that came out in 2019 i could not bring myself to watch it after reading the description and seeing the pictures there are actress uh twins that play them it's not the you know mark ruffalo (laughs) it looks very sensationalized and as i've said many times before i would prefer to watch a documentary me too to a stupid uh, Lifetime-ish. No offense right. to Lifetime, because actually I like some of their movies. But, you know, I don't want to see something that's half made up. 
No, me uh, neither. I'll just watch a documentary. And also, our podcast is much more informative and interesting than the Netflix movie would be, I'm sure. I'm sure. So that was, that's my first one. Episode number four, Sarah Chiker. The old oh, lady yeah. was abandoned right. in a cabin in Maine. That was sad, yeah. Victim of con artists. You got to listen to that one. That's a good one. Sarah died in Dece- on December 18th, 2017. So about a, a little over a year after our, or about a year after our episode. Right. I think she was 91. And she was living in a residence for the elderly in Freiburg, Maine at the time. Episode five, Joe Sun. The actor rapist from our Christmas episode of 2016. If you recall, he was a bit player in an Austin Powers movie. And DNA, as the guy from Case Files, I can't say it like him. But DNA identified him 19 years later, or something like 19 years later, as the person who brutally raped and beat a woman in Huntington Beach. He beat his prison cellmate to death, and in August 2017, he was sentenced to 27 years for manslaughter on top of the sentence he's now serving. So, if you want to hear more about him and other Christmas-related crimes... (laughs) That's that's a Merry Christmas Christmas episode. Episode 9 was our Women's March episode, and it's not really an update, but Trump still sucks and actually sucks more than we expected him to. Yeah, just think of all the time that's gone by since we went down to the Women's March in January Three and a half years. January 21st, 2017. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I just wanted, I just, and that when I was, was going the one the episodes, I was like, oh yeah. Right. And that still, was the one we did horrible. in the car. We did yes, it in the car on the did. way home. Yes, we did. Episode 10 was our Jonestown Oh episode. yeah. Yeah, that was a good Since one. Since that episode, uh, The Mass Suicide in Jonestown, there are several new documentaries out there, which I haven't seen. And if I'm in the right mood, I might watch one, but I don't. I but think I just I'm wanted all... to let people know they might be updated, but sometimes things aren't updated. Sometimes... Right. Sometimes the farther away from it you get, it, there's a different the perspective, and the it's less. annoying. If it's something that you lived through or remember when right. it happened, and then you're watching something 40 years later that the people who are doing it might not even remember it or might have not have been alive, it's kind of annoying. But I yeah. thought I'd let you guys know. Yeah, I don't want to sound uh, like I'm going to sound when I say this, but I can't imagine there'd be anything someone could say now about Jonestown. Yeah, that we didn't already hear. The only thing would be they talked to his sons, the two remaining sons, which I actually talked about, and, and I was—I think I'm the only one. You are in podcasts, but um, stuff like that. But it's basically going to be the same. Like I saw several documentaries that had been done over the years, and they talked to the same people mm-hmm. who aged, but they said pretty much the same things. No. So I would say the only thing would be new understanding of that type of yes, psychopath exactly you know, you know. and jackie spears is still kicking ass as a congresswoman and mm-hmm. i was telling mom we were watching she was on something on msnbc they were talking and i said you know she was shot in the face mm-hmm. at jonestown and lived yep. and mom's like yep. really and i'm like yep. yeah she just yeah. anyway so episode 12 uber crimes oh there have been so many if you google uber crime there are just too many there are just too many to update so just be careful Whenever you're out, whether you're using a rideshare or a regular taxi or just walking down the street, that's all I can say. There's yeah. just too many to update. Yeah. Be aware of your surroundings and yes. pay attention to the details. And, don't, and if you're going to drink a lot, just be, it's really. Use the buddy the system. Yes. Girls and please. boys, use yes. the buddy system for God's yes, sake. boys, don't walk around alone and drunk spe- and fall into the water. <laughs> Don't walk down the dock. Which is another episode. I think that was episode eight. There was another guy recently that disappeared. I know. Jesus, what is it with these young men and going near water? Because I think they're peeing. I think they're peeing. Oh, I didn't think of that. Anyways. Episode 18, Logan Marr. The five-year-old girl who died at the hands of her foster mother, Sally Schofield. Logan's birth mother, Christy Darling, died November 20th, 2017 of cancer at the age of 40. And I don't think, I think last update I did, she had cancer, but she did die. She was only 40. Yeah, that's sad. If I believed in God or heaven, I'd say, well, at least they're together now. But Mm -hmm. Um, episode 25 was about Phil Spector. (laughs) Oh, yeah. 
He's still in prison for the murder of Lana Clarkson. He will be eligible for parole in 2025. He's 80 years old right now. And he's still worth about $80 million. Ladies, get out there. (laughs) I wonder if he needs a pen pal. (laughs) He lost a wrongful death suit, but he still got tons of money. And episode 27 was Phil Hartman. I did two famous Phils in a row. I just looked up his kids to see how they were doing. Sean is now 31 and Bergen is 28. Sean's son, Bergen, was his daughter. Bergen has struggled with substance abuse but is sober and married now. I don't know what she does for a living. I couldn't find that out. They're both fairly private. Uh, Sean is a musician and artist like his father was before he got into comedy. And according to Phil's will, the kids would get one third of their inheritance at age 25 or when they received a bachelor's degree from an accredited school. Then they get the next third at age 30 and the remainder at 35. Mm -hmm. So I hope whoever is keeping his money safe is investing it well for them. Yeah, I hope so. Episode 29, Annie Dukin. (laughs) I just can't. Our most updated episode ever. I am not. I'm sure there are updates. What more could there be? This case will never end, and I did not even bother. could there be? Episode 34, son of Sam David Berkowitz. He's still in prison, obviously. I read an article online from World Magazine, January 30th, 2020, which is a Christian magazine. David is religious now. He don't, won't discuss his crimes except to mention or to maintain that he was part of a cult when he did them, which uh, is a bunch of bullshit. Yeah, it's crap. Um, he's a messianic Jew, which means he combines Judaism and Christianity kind of because he believes that Jesus is the Messiah. I don't. I don't I, hey, I'm not. I'm not even going down that road. Okay. He has a blog called Arise and Shine, which I did not look up and have no intention of reading. I don't know how he can be on the internet unless someone else puts the blog online, but maybe he's allowed to be on the internet. I know other prisoners aren't, so whatever. Maybe he writes it and somebody else posts That's it That's what for I him. think. Somebody else might post it, and then maybe he gets to, someone prints out the whatever for him. I only skimmed the article because it was annoying to me, because mm-hmm. he's very self-serving. As And if you listen to episode 34, I talk a lot about what he's like now. I just, saw some interviews right, with Just him. like a, you'd expect a psychopath yes, control freak to be. Episode 43. Hey, can I just say some, one more thing about your yes. son of Sam? Yes, of um, course it, you it's can. Kind, it's kind wanna... of an update, but if I remember right, during you that and episode... You are going to get married? No, I'm oh, okay. shooting for Phil Spector. He's got more Ooh, money. Ooh, yeah. But if I remember correctly in that episode, you did quite an entertaining rendition of Jimmy Breslin and Pete Hamill. Oh, yeah. Pete Hamill died um, oh, a few days oh, ago. Oh, that's right. He did. The yeah, longtime right. New York columnist and journalist and celebrity dater and everything. And Aww. I thought of your episode when Thank I was... You. because That's you right. Did. I saw that he had died. That's yeah. kind of a mini update within an update. Yeah, yeah. Episode 43 was Ashley Willette, the girl who was found dead in the middle of the road in Scarborough, Maine, in February of 1999. This past February, several TV stations had stories about how the police are looking for leads and are still asking anyone with information to come forward. It's still a case that resonates with people around here. Just the other day, a customer mentioned it to me saying he had been friends with her father and what a tragedy it was. I honestly don't remember how it came up, but I didn't bring it up. And I also didn't tell him about our podcast because I didn't feel like having him listen to it. Right. He's a customer who's like in his 60s. Oh, yeah. Um, As with many of our cases, I think the police have a pretty good idea who did it, but they just can't prove it. And also her killer may be dead right now. There are some people that I thought, there's several people that could have done it. And I don't think they'll ever be able to prove it unless somebody admits to it or says something. Like many. Yeah. Um, episode 45, Brenda Spencer, oh. the I Don't Like Monday shooter, is yep. still in prison at Riverside mm. County, California Institute for Women. She's been denied parole five times. She'll be up for parole again in September of 2021, and I suspect she'll be denied again due to mm-hmm. the notoriety of her case. Thanks, Bob Geldof. Yep. She was sentenced to two 25 years to life sentences, served concurrently. And she's been in jail now for over 40 years. So Pointless. It's pointless. 
to have her in jail. It's pointless for her to be Well, we talked about it. I know we did. Episode 47 was Linda Dolloff, the woman who was convicted of attempted murder for beating her husband with a baseball bat Mm -hmm. and then shooting herself to make it look like a home invasion. She petitioned for clemency in February 2020. She's asking for her 16-year sentence to be shortened and to be let out now. She also has four years probation to serve when she gets out, and she she didn't ask for that to be suspended. She just wants to get out of prison, I guess. Mm -hmm. In order to file for clemency in Maine, you have to have served at least half your sentence, and she's served nine years so far. If the governor does not grant her clemency, Linda could still get out as early as March of 2023. She has been a model prisoner, serving as an advocate for fellow prisoners who are facing disciplinary issues, being a mentor to younger inmates, and she's in training to help people with substance abuse problems. Good for her. Yeah. I don't know how our governor stands on that stuff, because she is a former attorney general, and they tend to... And she was a district attorney as well. I don't know, though. She's In some ways, I would think she might be okay, but... I don't know. But the uh, the thing about her being such a great prisoner, which, okay, I'm not, I know I'm going to sound like a bitch, but I don't Go ahead. If I were in prison, I'd be doing shit like that, too, because I'd be bored as hell. Right. So I'd be, like, volunteering and doing shit, because if you sit around not doing stuff, you're going to end up like those crazy sisters and, oh, you didn't see that season of... Orange is the New Black with the two crazy sisters. No, I lost my... I loved Orange is the New Black, but somewhere I lost my way oh, between anyways. two seasons. But, you know, I mean, I, I'm not saying that anybody would do that. And that, Yes, it is commendable that she she made use of her time there, but I'm also saying that, you know... I would, people... I would, too, because it kills two birds with one stone. It takes up your time, and it makes you... It makes you look better than you'd look if you were, you know, shivin' yeah. the guard or, And it keeps you know, your mind busy, you know. Putting drugs up your butt or whatever people do. Yeah, I don't know what they do. So, episode 51, Carol Sherrow. Do you remember Carol Sherrow? I do. Carol Sherrow. <laughs> I remember us having I hate her name. It. it was like the rural juror on, I know. on 30 Rock. She's the woman who, in 2018, drove her car onto a Little League field, killing Douglas Parkhurst, a man who was the driver in a hit-and-run accident 50 years before, in 1968, that killed a four-year-old girl. In New Last, York. In New York, yes. Yeah, sorry. Last year, per court order... Carol was committed to the State Mental Hospital in Augusta Riverview Psychiatric Center, formerly Amhi. Her stay will be indefinite. Carol suffers from bipolar disorder and has been hospitalized several times since 1987. Mental health experts agreed she was not only having a psychotic episode at the time she drove onto the baseball field, but for a long while after that. The judge found her not fit to stand trial and told said she had to go to the hospital. And presumably, if she ever gets better, she could stand trial, but she's not going to. I, they said she's probably going to just stay there. At the time of her arrest, she told police that she was bipolar due, due to longitude and latitude. Mm. Last year, ESPN released a documentary called The Hero of Goodall Park about the strange coincidental story of the two deaths. I have not seen it, but I plan to if I can find it. Oh, I I'll look for that about too. It. It, They had yeah. an article. It was actually on my birthday. They had an article yeah. in the paper about it, and and I totally forgot that I wanted to watch it. We have it. to figure out who streams ESPN. I know. In the documentary, Parkhurst's 19-year-old grandson apologized to the family of Douglas Parkhurst's victim, who was Carolee Ashby. It was the first apology they've ever received. Douglas Parkhurst did not admit to the crime until about five years before his death, when he was about to be found out. Mm. Police suggested he apologized to the family of his victim, but he never did. The statute of limitations had run out on his crime, which was driving drunk and I think causing a death, but it wasn't back then, 1968, it wasn't. We talk about it in the episode, yeah. episode 51. He wasn't charged with anything. In the documentary, Darlene Ashby McCann, who was holding her younger sister's hand when the car hit them, told Douglas Parker's grandson, his name is Douglas Parkhurst III. Mm. That's all my parents ever wanted was for someone to say that they were sorry and put some worth into her life. At the time of her younger sister's death, Darlene was 15. I think it was Darlene's birthday. Darlene later told the documentarian that Parkhurst Sr.'s death was poetic justice. Mm. 
Which it kind of was. It that kind of was. That's such an interesting story. It is. Episode 54. This will be my last one before you take over. Oh, wow. Okay. Frankie the dog was episode oh, 54. Frankie. Little Frankie. Not going to rehash it, but he was killed by two shit bags. Yes. One of his murderers, Justin Chipman, was recently sentenced to three years, all but one suspended, for all the crimes he did, including murdering Frankie. He murdered Frankie. If you listen to the episode, episode 54, um, they stole their boss's truck. Uh, They took Frankie, the little dog. He was a pug mix. I think he was pug and Boston Terrier. They tortured him and murdered him and threw him in the ocean. Um, And his little body washed up on the beach. His partner in crime, Nathan Burke, is still awaiting trial. And has asked for a bench trial. I don't know why he thinks the judge is going to be any easier Mm, on him. I know. Well, because the judge will follow the law and not think so much about the poor little little dog. Frankie. Anyways, now you had an update. I do. I first did this in episode 63, and I know I updated it since, shortly after. I can't remember what episode I updated it in, but I haven't updated it in a long time, and I should have. So, that said... It was a main mini in episode 63. In fact, I should have done it a few months ago, but dropped the ball. In any case, the case of Stephen Downs, the man charged with murdering and sexually assaulting Sophie Sergey, right, in Alaska in 1993. There was a hearing, a court hearing that was supposed to happen in April, but it has been delayed by the coronavirus pandemic, but that doesn't mean the legal stuff has stopped. Downs, 45, from Auburn, Maine, was charged with killing University of Alaska Fairbanks student Sophie Sergi, 20, in April 1993 in a dorm at the college. Downs attended the college from 1992 to 1996. He was arrested February 15, 2019 in Auburn, Maine, and charged with the murder based on DNA evidence. They first caught on to him in 2018 when a cop involved in the cold case submitted a DNA sample from spermatozoa. I, I don't know why that makes me laugh. Um, <laughs> I know. To Parabon Nanolabs, the same way they caught the alleged, oh, I don't have to say alleged anymore, the Golden State Killer. It linked the DNA to an aunt of Downs, and then police came to Auburn and got a swab from Downs in February 2019 that they say confirmed the DNA match, and he was charged with sexual assault and murder and arrested. If you remember, there was a long legal back and forth concerning his extradition to Alaska, but he was finally extradited several yes, months. Yes, it took for friggin' ever. Right, and it was several months later, and as we mentioned before, he's morbidly obese, and one of the articles I read when I was looking up this update talks about the extradition process, and it doesn't say he flew but my guess is he couldn't fit in an airplane seat. I could be wrong. And they drove him because his lawyer says he stayed in several jails across the country as he was extradited and finally got to Alaska. Interesting. Yeah, I'd like to know more about that. So the April court action was on a defense motion to suppress much of the evidence in 3,000 pages of discovery that the defense got last year. Another motion in June filed by Downs attorney James Howiniak of Auburn was to sanction the prosecution for a 5,000-page evidence dump of additional discovery that was sent an email by email in April shortly after the hearing was supposed to take place. Howiniak says he needs more time to go through the evidence, and he wants also to have the court issue sanctions against the prosecution because no one told them the additional evidence was coming. It's nearly a year after they got the initial 3,000 pages. This is outrageous, Howiniak wrote in his June motion as reported by the Lewiston Sun Journal in Lewiston, Maine. This case has been investigated by the state of Alaska for over 27 years. We have stumbled upon highly exculpatory emails and records in the new discovery in which members of the Alaska Crime Lab themselves apparently raise questions about their own evidence and testing. And Downs is also represented by Howiniak's partner, Jesse Archer, and a Fairbanks attorney, Frank Spaulding. Although Howiniak is going to Fairbanks to represent Downs. Oh, interesting. 
Yes, and the attorneys had requested all additional discovery, particularly anything that related to DNA evidence last August, and in a later request last year, specifically asked for missing DNA records, and it's a request that went unanswered for months, Howiniak said, until they got the dump in April. In December, Howiniak had sought dismissal of all the DNA evidence, as well as firearm possession evidence, which is basically the entire prosecution case. Sophie Sergey had taken a semester off, but was visiting the school and staying in the dorm with friends because she had an orthodontist appointment in Fairbanks. She, she was um, from a little town far away in Alaska, and I meant to write the name down, but forgot. On her second night visiting, she was hanging with a friend and the friend's boyfriend in the dorm, and she wanted to smoke a cigarette. Her friend told her that instead of going outside to go use the bathroom and blow the smoke out the vent in the bathroom wall. By 1.30 a.m., Sophie had not returned to the room. Her friend left a note on the door that she was sleeping in another dorm that night with her boyfriend. When she returned the next morning, the note was still there and Sophie wasn't. The bed hadn't been slept in. The friend called the orthodontist, and Sophie had missed her appointment. University janitors found so Smart friend to call the, do- the orthodontist. I know, her friend was worried about her um, from the beginning, because she should have been there, and she wasn't. So, it is a smart friend. University janitors found Sophie's body in a bathtub in a tub room, which is a small, separate, private room in the bathroom near the shower stalls. And this was on the second floor which is an all-girls floor. They had, like my college did when I went, you know, girls, boys, girls. It was an eight-floor dorm, you know, that alternated girls and boys' floors. Her sweater and her pants were half-removed. She was laying on her back, and it was the classic, you know, sweater pulled up around her neck kind of thing, pants pulled down. The autopsy revealed she was stabbed twice in the right corner of her right eye while she was still alive and killed by a single gunshot wound to the back of her head. She was stabbed in the. Uh. I know she was stabbed in the face again after she died. Her hair and clothes were damp, though it was more than twelve hours after they believe she died. Uh, so they surmised water may have been run on her after the assault. Other abrasions and marks were found on her body, and she had been sexually assaulted. They found her cigarette lighter when they removed her body underneath her. Her socks and shoes were still on. A girl who was taking a shower in the bathroom around 1.30 a.m. told investigators that she had thumping and muffled voices coming from the tub room. Investigators canvassed the area and interviewed students who had been at Bartlett Hall, the dorm, including Downs, who was 18 and a freshman at the time, and his roommate, Nicholas Dazer. The two lived on the third floor. Dazer worked as a security guard on campus and helped secure the scene. Both Downs and Dazer told the police they didn't know anything, and Downs said he was in his girlfriend's room on the fourth floor most of the night. Investigators at the time recovered some evidence from her body, presumably the spermatozoa, as well as a 22 caliber bullet used to shoot Sophie. They had trouble talking to everyone they wanted to because the eight-floor dorm had a lot of movement going on that night, a lot of people in and out, and there was no way to really tell who was around and who wasn't. Um, And anybody who's lived in a college dorm knows, you know, kind of what it's like. At the time, DNA processing technology had not been introduced in Alaska. A DNA profile confirming the suspect as male was uploaded in 2000, but it didn't match anyone in the FBI database. In 2009, investigators said there was evidence she may have been killed somewhere else and moved to the bathtub, but they didn't say what that evidence was. In 2010, investigator James Stodgsdill, who had been assigned the case, talked to Dazer, Downs' roommate again, because Dazer had been fired as a security guard because he had a gun, which wasn't allowed in the dorm. He denied in 2010 having a 22 caliber gun like the one used in Sophie's murder, but he told Stodgill that his roommate, Downs, had one, among other firearms. Not much came of that, and the case went cold until 2018 and the extension of the DNA to the lab. According to the motion to exclude DNA evidence last year, and I just told you all that background so you you'd get what I'm about to say. Um, Okay. According to the motion to exclude DNA evidence last year, a lead investigator is quoted telling the FBI that 19 people, including students, had entered the bathtub area to see Sophie's body, thereby contaminating the crime scene before the investigator and his crew arrived. And I seem to remember, and I don't want to, I may be misremembering, I couldn't find the update I did to this. I want to say it was maybe in March or April of 2019, 
But I think there was some implication that instead of killing her, Downs may have just... In ex- anybody, um, right? Anybody who's squeamish about this kind of thing can say la 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 for thirty seconds. But he may have just like jerked off over her body, which I don't think is likely. But uh, you know, the motion uh, reads—that's what I said he might have done too. I, I think, but. yeah. The motion reads that in 1993, the original medical examiner, who is now believed to be deceased, according to um, the article where I read this had examined Serge's body, collected samples, and wrote a very brief report. During a re-examination of the 1993 autopsy, years later by a forensic expert, and I don't know when this was, the expert came up with a number of conclusions that were significantly contrary to the conclusions of the original medical examiner, according to Downs' lawyers. And this is from a Lewiston Sun Journal article. And motions filed in November, his lawyers said affidavits, grand jury proceedings, and bail arguments claiming Downs owned a 22 caliber revolver in the second semester of his freshman year at UAF are completely false. And that's in quotes. This is actually from a December article in the Lewiston Sun. Although prosecutors have claimed the murder weapon was a 22 caliber handgun seized earlier this year from Downs' home in Auburn, Downs and his lawyers said he bought the gun in Turner, Maine in 2016. In their motions, Downs' lawyers argue there is no evidence that any of his firearms or knives were connected to Sophie's death, and there is no evidence that Downs owned, quote, a stun gun, a ligature, or any sort of blunt force object that would have been used in the assault on Sergei. Furthermore, and this is still a quote, any evidence of Downs' connection to weapons is tenuous and irrelevant to the evidence in the case his lawyers wrote in the motion. In another motion filed at the same time, his lawyer said that while Alaska has produced, quote, some level of evidence that there may have been sexual contact between Downs and Sophie, there is no evidence as to when such sexual contact may have occurred, unquote. I know. The motion also points to a statement made by Randall McFerrin, the Alaska State Police detective who did the Parabon Nanolab's DNA thing in 2018, in an affidavit that says, DNA alone is not enough to prove Downs committed the murder, only that he had sexual intercourse with Sergei, and that the DNA evidence could not indicate whether the intercourse was consensual or not. And I'm not sure why they need that statement in their motion, since this is one of those no-duh kind of statements that every lawyer brings up when there's sperm DNA evidence um, so I don't know why they need to quote the cop saying it, too, unless they just feel it hammers home their point. His lawyers also filed a motion to exclude evidence of what Downs read, the music he preferred, or his other interests at the time of the killing or since, as well as information about his breakup with a girlfriend. And at first I was going to say, who does want, all these years later, evidence of what they read and listened to when they were 18 used as evidence against them? But when I think of it, I'm probably listening to the same music now that I listened to when I was eight. <laughs> I was just too. driving down the road yesterday with the windows down with some Tom Petty, the Damn the Torpedoes album blasting, thinking what an awesome album that was, and that came out when I was uh, in high yes. school. So Anyway, his lawyers asked at the hearing to establish the alternative, the alternative suspect's defense at trial and that several alternate suspects weren't investigated as they should have been. When police first caught up with Downs in 2019, he said he remembered the case from the posters that had been up but hadn't seen and didn't remember Sophie herself. He had worked as a nurse in Livermore Falls, Maine, which is north of of Lewiston, a residential home there for disabled people until he was fired in 2016 and was warned by the state nursing board for a totality of substandard performance. Part of the complaint was two female co-workers complaining he had made them feel uncomfortable with some of the remarks he had made, though it didn't specify what he had said. He got his nursing license in 2011 and apparently hasn't worked anywhere as a nurse since he was fired in 2016, though when he was fired he had to sign a consent agreement with the nursing board that required him to complete a course in professional boundaries before his license would be reinstated. And he did complete the course, according to the court document. And it's not clear either who is paying for what must be an incredibly expensive legal defense for him. Nobody, I know, I was wondering that myself. His, his lawyer even mentioned in one of the stories how expensive this defense was getting 
because of the amount of discovery they now have to go through, the going back and forth to Fairbanks, blah, blah, blah. If I were an editor at the Lewiston newspaper, I would, which is next door to Auburn, Lewiston and Auburn, where Downs is from, I'd say to one of those bright young reporters, why don't we find out who's paying for his defense? Not that it's anything nefarious, but most people cannot afford the kind of defense that he's getting. You know, I think it sounds like in 1993 that the crime scene wasn't as secured as it could have been, and a lot of things didn't go the way they should have, and this could be another case of whether Downs did it or not. The only thing connected is that DNA and DNA on somebody's body does not better be careful when your DNA is shedding all over the place right but it's not around a dead body it's not evidence of a murder I know it's only evidence his sperm somehow got on her body and that is my update on that thank you what's and I've got one from episode 71 so okay And this episode was one of, it was about like this one. It was a bunch of updates, but we also had some short things. This was a short uh, main mini thing that I did on this episode 71. And this update just happened in the past few days. Last fall, I did a story about Ayla Mansman, the Cape Elizabeth, Maine high school student who left a post-it note in the bathroom that said, there's a rapist in our school and you know who it is. Ayla was suspended for supposedly bullying another student, even though her note did not name anyone specifically, nor did she even mean a specific person. Ayla said her purpose in leaving the note was to start a discussion about sexual assault at the school, which she had been trying to do and was thwarted, if you listen to episode 71. Other girls also left notes once they saw hers. After the suspension, Ayla and her mother filed a suit against the school district with the help from the main ACLU, which is American Civil Liberties Union, if you didn't know. Mm-hmm. A judge ruled, a district court judge ruled in favor of Ayla back in October of 2019, saying that she shouldn't have been suspended and they, that they should, I can't remember what what the right word is, but rescind the suspension maybe but the school district did not drop the suspension even though the district court judge at the time told them that ayla was likely to prevail in a higher court i don't know what what their friggin problem is well in cape elizabeth they have a lot of tax money to throw around so i know and she did prevail on thursday august 6th this of this year 2020 this past thursday of our taping The first U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals in Boston ruled in Ayla's favor. U.S. Circuit Judge Amanda Lynch wrote in the decision, quote, Indeed, a school cannot suppress speech simply because it is unpopular with or critical of the school administrators. Ayla told the Portland Press-Herald, This is a huge win for survivors, for survivor advocates, for everyone. This case is just an example of what happens all over the country, and I really think that students, but also school administrators, have an opportunity to learn from this. Emma Bond, the legal director for the Maine ACLU, said, It is already difficult for survivors and their allies to speak up about sexual assault. The circuit court's decision affirms that schools cannot silence students simply for speaking up on important but difficult issues. It affirms the long-established precedent that students do not leave their constitutional rights at the schoolhouse door. The Cape Elizabeth School District's attorney, Melissa Huey, said, This has always been a case about the school's (laughs) efforts to address bullying. The First Circuit recognized this, and this decision strengthens the ability of school administrators to deal with bullying speech, even when it is not disruptive to the school as a whole. And to this I say, boy lady, are you missing the point. Mm -hmm. And her spin that it's a win for the school district is laughable. I'll talk about the bullying issue later, but that has nothing... It just drives me nuts. The whole incident should have been about sexual assault in school, which, as we talk about in episode 71, was pretty much ignored. The first thing that they did was say, ooh, somebody being sexually assaulted, and then like almost immediately just started blaming Ayla for bullying some freaking kid. 
In June of 2020, the First Circuit heard oral arguments on the school district's appeal of Ayla's three-day school suspension. There were also amicus briefs filed, one by the Gender Violence Legal Policy Workshop at Harvard Law School, that said the way the school bungled the case showed serious Title IX compliance problems. The Cape Elizabeth School District's rebuttal was that the response was mischaracterized, to which I say again, no. No. And if you listen to our, our my longer story in episode 71, yeah, you'll see and, that. And mischaracterized that they, by who? This is a court hearing. They're not basing their stuff on what's in the newspaper, you no know? shit. In the order, the judges wrote, quote, We agree with the school that bullying is the type of conduct that implicates the governmental interest in protecting against the invasion of the rights of others. Thus, schools may restrict such speech, even if it does not necessarily cause substantial disruption to the school community. However, for a school to rely on that basis for restricting student speech, there must be a reasonable basis for the administration to have determined both that the student speech targeted a specific student and that it invaded that student's rights and obviously this is me talking now the court didn't think that the school was being reasonable which makes melissa's huey's statement that it supports the school's ability to deal with bullying speech as she calls it ridiculous right i mean they, oh. and i think we talked at the time too that the post-it notes were very general yes and the school immediately leapt to the conclusion that she was talking about a specific person. Yes, and we talk about him. Right, I mean, which... Well, one, who it could be. Which makes it obvious, you know, it's kind of... It, talk about begging the question. I know. It it makes it obvious then, yes, there is a sexual assault problem in the school if the school officials know who she's talking about in these very <sighs> general post-it notes. In the decision, the judges also wrote that they found no link between the posting of the note and bullying of one particular student and though they thought posting a note maybe wasn't the best way to deal with the issue of sexual assault in the school that wasn't the issue they were addressing in the appeal the issue was whether or not the district court was wrong in issuing an injunction on ayla's suspension and the first circuit court found that it was not the district court was not wrong that she shouldn't have been suspended right and also on the point that posting a note isn't the best way to deal with sexual assault she's a student she tried to bring sexual assault she did, issues. As we and to, we, we discussed that and, in the original story right, that and, she did try. And she's not the one who should be dealing with it. This was her reaction to the school not dealing with it. That's right. Ayla said, quote, if we're just doing healing work and justice work, that's not enough. I really hope that the school is able to reflect on their sex ed curriculum and their consent education that happens in school so students really know the right and wrong way to conduct a sexual relationship. Good for quote. her. And I say good luck with that. Yeah. The school district's actions so far don't indicate any of that they don't seem no. like they even understand what the issue is no they don't a ayla told the press herald that the note incident and the ensuing legal battle it was national news brought together a lot of survivors of sexual assault advocates and activists from across the country one of them was daisy coleman one of the founders of safe bay if you recall ayla's mother shayelle norris is an executive director of, of safe bay a main chapter of it which is a sexual assault awareness and and like schools and stuff organization daisy coleman who was featured in the documentary about school sexual assault audrey and daisy committed suicide last week ayla mm. said that daisy had been a mentor quote she would have been the first person i told about this we're really sad that she's gone she is i know so proud of everything that is happening this is a win for her Wow. And I will say that I'm glad that Ayla won, but I'm a bit disheartened by the response from the Cape Elizabeth School District. Right. They don't seem to get what the issue uh, is. Not that it should matter, but we're talking about one of the wealthiest communities in oh, the yeah. state of Maine. And if any community has the resources and ability to get what they need to understand this, it should be Cape Elizabeth. I, I don't understand and it. The obtuseness is just going to allow sexual assault to continue. Yep. And victims are going to continue to not want to come forward because right. of this. I mean, I saw on the news the other night 
The school district's lawyer is just like, yeah, well, the court told us that, what did she say, that it's they can restrict students' right to free speech if they're bullying. And it's like, yeah, but that's not really what they said. That's not what the court And that's said. not the point of the whole thing. So why are you even yeah. talking about bullying? Right, because so, the court said it wasn't bullying. I would have liked to have a reporter say to her, well... But that's really not the court. Ca- what the court case was about. Right. It's about and, fucking and me- right. sexual assault. And, and meanwhile, the whole the whole lesson from this whole lengthy thing has been that the school is more concerned about quote unquote mm-hmm. bullying than it is about young women getting raped. And I don't. I said this in our last episode. I may have about this, but I wondered who the that boy was. I wonder if he was from a wealthy family. I don't think Ayla is from an extremely wealthy family. I don't know for sure. And I'm I sure there's more it, than one boy. But there was a specific one who was out of school for eight days because right. of his ostracism and all this right. stuff and his parents complained and blah blah blah. Right. And it's like parents you're setting that kid up to be to do more shit like mm-hmm. this. But yeah, so that and I was think, my... Right, oh, and I ahead. think we also discussed the fact that if it had been in a poor yeah. town, it would have played out a whole different I way. I think it would have been much different. Yeah, but anyway, well, thank you. That was a good newsy update. Now you have one. My next one is episode 72, Coconut Grove and Beyond. Ooh. Once burned. Marshall Cole, who was a 16-year-old dancer in the Coconut Grove nightclub in Boston on November 28, 1942, the night it burned down, killing almost 500 people, died June 28th at the age of 94. His death was reported in the Boston Globe on July 29th. Besides helping to save a bunch of people from the fire, and if you want to hear more about him, you can listen to episode 72. He later, in World War II, narrowly escaped death again when the ship he was serving on, the USS Hancock, was attacked by kamikazes. He'd been on he'd been right, he'd been on watch with two other guys on the tower that night, but became sick and was sent down to the doctor's galley or whatever it's called, where he was given an aspirin and told to go to bed. It turned out later he had meningitis. Shortly after he left his post, the tower was hit by kamikaze planes and the other guys were killed. He later became a water skier for fun, not a job, who performed oh, acrobatics. A dancer, a yeah, skier. he was a dancer as well. And he performed acrobatics while being towed by speeding boats on places like Lake Winnipesaukee in New Hampshire. For a career, he was a milkman for HP Hood Company and then a salesman. He lived in Vermont for some years before moving back to the Boston area. He didn't talk much about the Coconut Grove fire until the 2012 project to gather oral histories from survivors that I talk about in our episode. So that's my episode 72 update. Ooh, interesting. And now I have an update on episode 77, our Say Her Name episode that talks about Brianna Taylor's death and the killing of Brianna Taylor, actually, and several other killings of black women who are doing nothing wrong except for apparently being black and women. But Brianna Taylor, the young woman killed for no good reason on March 13th in Louisville, Kentucky, was on the cover of O, Oprah's magazine, recently, and it's the first time anyone besides Oprah has been on the cover. Wow. And I always thought it was weird that Oprah was always on the cover. I know. But that's Oprah. And on August 7th, so that was just a couple days ago as we're recording this, Kentucky Attorney General Daniel Cameron said he's still committed to the case, but investigators are still gathering information on the March 13th shooting. Give me a fucking break. Well, his office is still waiting for key evidence specifically related to the guns and bullets involved in the shooting. I neglected to report in our other episode that on June 19th, The FBI searched the apartment, which took them two days, and collected what they called a significant amount of ballistic evidence, and they completed a shooting reconstruction, which I believe, if it's like in that um, documentary I talk about on, on the episode 
77 peace officer, they use like strings and stuff to show the like paths. Like they did with uh, the Noah Gaston, too. Yes, yes. The evidence is being tested and analyzed at the FBI laboratory in Quantico, Virginia. And since there were three guys just merrily shooting like 22 rounds or whatever, eight of which struck. Brianna Taylor and killed her, it probably does take a while to just figure out what they all are and where they came from. The protests for justice for Brianna Taylor have not slowed down. If you don't know what happened to Brianna Taylor, you should by now, but you can listen to episode 77, and she isn't the only one that episode talks about. There are so many, and so I also want to make a general point about, quote, black crime, unquote, in general, because I've heard a lot of bullshit in the past few months as the Black Lives Matter and Say Her Name protests have gone on. Concerning the white trope that there's more, quote, black crime than white crime and the police are being kind of unfairly targeted. And I guess it all depends on where you live and who you listen to, if you're hearing this and what you think of it. Since our recording, several cases, probably considered minor in the big scheme of things, and for that very reason, they're startling in a way, have caught my eye. I'll tell you about a couple of them, and then we'll talk about the problem, why they're a problem afterwards. And these are just a few of the stories I've come across in the past month or so. It's just the tip of the iceberg, which just tells you how things are. In June, Victor White, a 32-year-old cook at Tufts University in Medford, Massachusetts, was sitting on his front porch in Lynn, Mass, drinking beer with some friends, when police showed up, saying they were responding to a noise complaint. The cops thought the guy shouldn't be drinking on the porch. White pointed out, correctly, it's legal to drink beer on your own private porch. A cop asked his name, and before he knew it, Victor White and his two friends were being handcuffed and dragged off the porch. Oh my god. And were brought down to the police station. I think it goes without saying, but I'll say it anyways. The three guys were all black. The cops were white. They were initially charged with public drinking. One of the cops, Matthew Coppinger, in a police report, described White as, quote, obnoxious and a highly resistant prisoner. Coppinger wrote that he stepped Give into me a break. Right. Coppinger wrote that he stepped into assist officers and de-escalate the situation. I love it when they de-escalate by, you know, making it worse. Coppinger says White swore he yelled and otherwise hindered and resisted nearly all aspects of the booking process. He refused to remove a sanitary mask, which the report states is not permitted inside the cell. Quote, we gave him one final chance and told him the mask would be removed from him by us if he did not do so, Coppinger wrote. And I gotta tell you, I don't want to be in any fucking jail without my mask on. Why Why? Why can't they wear a mask once they're in the cell? I, like, what difference does Because it make? cops are assholes. Then Coppinger and another cop, quote-unquote, guided White onto the floor to stop his violent behavior, the report said. The two cops continued to tussle with Victor White, the black guy. Eventually, the officers removed his mask and locked the cell. White was then charged with not only public drinking, but assault and battery on a police officer resisting arrest and disorderly conduct. The charges have since been dropped, and the Essex County DA launched an independent investigation. The cop, Matthew Coppinger, resigned. And more about that in a minute. But last week I was reading the Washington Post and came across an article about two young women, both black, who were taking their kids, both babies, toddler age, about a year old, to the mall in Washington, D.C. This is the mall where the monuments are, not a shopping mall, to splash in the fountains at the World War II Memorial. India Johnson, 26, and Yasmin Winston, 25, were getting the kids out of the car and checking that every they had everything, the diaper bags and stuff. They were parked on the street on Constitution Avenue. Mother Goose Club was playing on the car sound system when they heard a crash and felt a jolt. A Secret Service cruiser had deliberately driven into their front bumper. Within seconds, a uniformed Secret Service officer was pointing a rifle at them, screaming at them to get out and put their hands in the air. And as we talked about in episode 77, there's never a polite request. It's this screaming, not explaining, not doing anything, but just screaming to the point where you cannot understand what the cops are even saying. They don't give you a chance to think. 
More officers surrounded the two young mothers and their two babies with their guns pulled. Over the next hour, the two young women were handcuffed, separated from the crying babies, and manhandled by the initially maskless cops. And this was told to the Washington Post by India Johnson. One of the cops told her that the car had been reported stolen, and the suspects were two black men. Johnson told them where to find proof she was the owner of the car, and, um, no black men in the car, just two little babies crying and two young women. Eventually, they were released after about an hour of being handcuffed out on the street with the babies crying. They weren't apologized to or told why they were stopped. Those poor, like... I know. I know. Except for the stolen car thing. That was the only thing they were told. The day I read that story in the Post, and it had happened maybe three days before it was in the Post, I was watching the news later that day. When I saw a report, I thought it was the same story. Yet it had some weird differences, like there were more people and stuff. Oh wait, it wasn't the same story. A few days after the Washington, D.C. incident, Brittany Gilliam in Aurora, Colorado, had taken her niece's sister and daughter out for a day at a nail salon. The girls were 17, 14, 12, and 6. They were parked in the slum. Yes. Yeah, they were parked in the salon parking lot when Aurora police pulled up behind them, got out with guns drawn, and yelled for them to put their hands out of the window and to get out of the car. They got out and were ordered to lie face down on the pavement. Brittany asked more than once what was going on, and the cops wouldn't tell her. Everyone, including the six year old. Oh, I saw that video. The little girl face down that made me very angry. Right. We're handcuffed. All of them. Gilliam said her life passed before her eyes. She was sure she was going to get shot. I think she had good reason to be afraid of that. The police then told her the vehicle had been reported stolen. She said she'd reported it stolen in February, but that had been cleared up, this being July and all. She offered to show them the registration and insurance paperwork. It turns out the SUV the cops were looking for was similar to Gilliam's, but had plates from another state. After they realized the mistake, the police took the handcuffs off everybody and apologized. This one was caught on cell phone video, and as Becky mentions, if you've seen it, the little girls are hysterical, which I don't blame them. Newly appointed Aurora, Colorado Police Chief Vanessa Williams said it's department policy that when they come across a car that's been reported stolen to do what's called a high-risk stop, which involves drawing weapons, ordering occupants to get out of the car, and to lie prone on the ground. But she also said officers also need to learn to deviate from the process when different scenarios present themselves. Gilliam says, though, it never would have happened if it had been a car full of white women. And that's the crux of the whole black crime thing. The charges against Victor White, the incidents with these women, both in D.C. and Colorado, just days apart, would not be happening to white people. Even as we speak on a warm August night, I bet there are white guys all over America and certainly in Lynn, Massachusetts, drinking beer on the porch of their house with no fear at all that police will hassle them. Police can blame policy, but obviously they use different standards when it comes to different races, and I'm not saying anything any of us haven't heard a million times before, but I guess we have to keep saying it. I scoured the internet for something similar to what happened to the two different groups of black women happening to white women. I couldn't find anything. I couldn't find anything even remotely similar to that. I'm not saying it's never happened, but I couldn't find anything. The D.C. women felt empowered by recent events to approach the Washington Post with their story, and someone in Colorado had cell phone on the action, cell phone video on the action, and I even wonder, even with that cell phone video, if it weren't for the stuff that's been going on since May 25th when George Floyd was killed, if anybody would have cared about that cell phone video. We know that all over the U.S., even now, even with the Black Lives Matter and Say Her Name awareness, these things are going on and continue to go on every day. These three things are just a fraction of what I've seen in the newspapers that I read in the past weeks. Racism in law enforcement creates quote-unquote crime that doesn't exist. If it hadn't been for recent publicity, Victor White would likely still be charged with public drinking, even though he's allowed to drink on his porch, assault on a police officer, resisting arrest, and more. And I don't know about you, but I do not believe the cops version of somebody resisting arrest. He was, I'm sure, asserting his rights and not being listened to. We've seen plenty of videos, not only of George Floyd, but of plenty of other people 
over the past few months who are asking, what's going on? Why are you arresting me? And the cops don't give a shit and are handcuffing the person, pushing them onto the ground and doing worse things to them. We create situations that either conjure crime where it doesn't exist or make for living in economic conditions that sow crime with racism at the root of them. Coppinger, the cop who resigned after the Victor White thing, the one who wrote the report, saying how difficult he was, told the Boston Globe that he followed department policies and procedures during the altercation, but that Lynn police, quote, needed a scapegoat given the current environment around policing. It's a tough time to be a cop, he said. And I'm sick of hearing about the, quote, war on cops, or whatever you want to call it. Instead of them feeling sorry for themselves about how tough things are for them right now, maybe they ought to start reflecting on how tough things have been on black, Latino, and native people in America for the past four or more centuries. But until that starts happening, this kind of shit isn't going to end. And that's my episode 77 update. My final update is episode 78, Jelaine Maxwell. And there's a lot of background stuff that's coming out since we last recorded. And I won't get into all the salacious stuff. But the one piece of news that's happened is that on July 31st, a judge, a federal judge, unsealed hundreds of pages of deposition transcripts and other documents related to a 2016 defamation suit brought from... Virginia Roberts, Jeffrey, I I can never pronounce her name correctly, the young woman who's kind of at the center of a lot of the stuff against Jelaine and Jeffrey Epstein. I'm not saying that right. But the 47 documents include a deposition given by Epstein accuser Jeffrey, the draft of a memoir she was writing about her experiences inside the sex trafficking ring, and email exchanges between Maxwell and Epstein. What wasn't unsealed was Maxwell's deposition transcripts from that. And a judge issued a delay on unsealing those documents with no explanation. Maxwell's attorneys have said that the release could prejudice a jury and her right to a fair trial, her trial scheduled for next July. The prosecution argues that those depositions should not have been sealed in the first place, and it'll be brought up again in court in September. And that is... I can't wait for her trial. I know, me neither. I hope it all comes up. Hopefully she'll stay alive until then. And because of the nature of our episode today, we're not doing our NNW. But I do want to do an update on my one from last time. Okay. When last we talked, I was obsessively reading, hate reading. I wouldn't really call it hate reading. I'd call it maybe annoyed reading. The Ian Rutledge series by Charles Todd. Ian Rutledge is a Scotland Yard detective who's come back shell-shocked from World War One. And if you listen to my review, I have many, <laughs> many issues with the books. Not, uh, not enough to stop reading them. No, I can't. I, I at some That's, point will have okay. to... I think I've just gone COVID crazy. So I have some issue, but I'm on my 14th one now. <laughs> I think... When I reviewed them, I thought the father, the father, the mother-son couple that collaborates on them under the pen name mm. Charles Todd, I thought they were British, but they're actually American. And so it's that weird phenomenon of American mystery writers writing British mysteries. And I don't know if there I are don't British. That. I don't either. There's Elizabeth George. There's there's what's her name who wrote the the Richard Jury ones. But you know, I don't I don't know of any English. British writers who write American mysteries. Maybe there are some and I'm just not aware. But I have nothing better to say about the writing than what I said last time. <laughs> um, I do not have any after... I think the, I had written read six or seven books the last time and I've read 14. They go fast. You've Four- read 14 books. I'm on the 14th. What, oh God. Well, they it's go like fast. It's like a book a day. Well, I was on vacation for some of that. But, you know, there's, I read before I go to bed, you know. But one of the things, though, I've thought while I'm reading them is, and I think, Becky, I mentioned this to you, is that they remind me of when I'm writing, and it's like even pre-first draft when I'm just trying to get the story down, so I kind of say what's going to happen without kind of filling it out with dialogue and making it better, and that's what some of this is. But again... They are. They've written a book a year since 1994. And yeah, and you're still writing yours instead of you're reading that 
stuff. And mom is like, I hope she's doing some writing while she's doing all that reading. <laughs> Interesting that mom is so aware of this when I don't believe I've discussed it with her. <laughs> and she's mom is very just. I I tell her stuff about you to keep her from judging me. That's well, why. Well, that's one of the that's one of the things you get to do when you live with them. I probably did the same thing when I was living with them. No, I'm trying to get my writing done. The thing is about writing is that it's very similar to my three jobs, where reading. A British post-World War One mystery, even ones that have major writing issues, is nothing like any of my three jobs. So what was your update? Just that, that was it. American? <laughs> oh, okay. No, and that I've read 14 of them now, oh, okay. and I and my original review still stands, okay. basically. I and really I guess know. on that note, because... I have to get up early to work tomorrow, yes. and I believe you probably do. Yes, I do. So but we'll our, see you guys again next Right. Time. In our next episode, you are doing a long-awaited topic. No, no it's not a long-awaited. Oh, I still okay. wasn't ready for with that one, so I'm doing another one that I thought was going to be shorter, but now it has become just as involved and I, <laughs> I can't wait <laughs> a book that i and, wasn't gonna read a book and then i ended up reading a and book. and you're still completing our logo so we can get that i'm still working on swag, that i didn't like swag. the one i just um, did so i'm okay I'm gonna do it but i understand I as, a, as yeah. a fellow artist although an artist with words i understand huh. um yes so until um until next time everybody uh crime and stuff online.com twitter that's right everything you need to know and we'll be talking to you again in two weeks okay bye-bye bye-bye thanks for listening are you still there are you still there there? yeah are you how long have you been gone for I just reconnected. Um, I know you did. I didn't notice you were gone. Okay. Well, you missed my um, impassioned. About three minutes. Anti. Wow. You missed my impassioned anti-racist rant. You'll just have to listen to it. I just thought you were muted. (laughs) And then I'm like, (laughs) and I was waiting for you to react and you didn't. But um, anyway, you you can listen to it when the thing comes up.